Well, when we met two weeks ago, we listened to Amos as he gave a kind of a mournful funeral dirge. He was singing a song that you would sing maybe at a funeral. And that seemed kind of ironic probably to his listeners because he was preaching a people that were, as far as they could see, were living their best life now. Israel seemed to be at the peak of its power. Its military was strong. The economy was even stronger. And Jeroboam II ruled with confidence and an iron fist. So nobody from the outside looking in would see Israel and think, this is a nation on her deathbed. But as is the case so often in human history, what looks like strength to us from our human perspective looks like disease and rot to God. And so while Israel thought of herself as a young woman in her prime, is the illustration that Amos uses, Amos laments as he looks at her prophetically, seeing a mangled and forgotten corpse left unburied on the battlefield. Israel thought she was Miss Universe, and Amos sees her as a casualty of war. That's very two different perspectives on the same nation. And the only hope for any of them were if even a remnant of Israel, even if a remnant might turn from their sin, seek the Lord, then they may live. That's the promise we hear from the Lord. That's the word of hope he offers. But they slap his hand away. Amos warns them again, if you don't retreat from your religion, if you don't retreat from your politics, if you don't turn to God alone, the one who made the stars and the seas for your hope, you will have no hope in yourself. And of course, did Israel do that? We should know better of Israel by this point in the story. Israel relied on her sinful human ways, pride and money and power and status and fading beauty. That's where she put all of her chips on the table. So since Israel would not collectively repent, the Lord promises through Amos in a separate sermon that there will be a coming day of judgment and wrath from the least to the greatest. Nobody will escape the Lord's eye. And he warns that there is just no hiding for anybody. They won't be be able to hide in their temples, behind their robes and fancy incenses. They won't be able to hide in their homes with their personal private bodyguards or their military because God sees through the facade of Israel and he sees that everything in her is just cruel and empty. And ultimately, the sad thing is, even though Israel has these glorious temples like places like Bethel, where God is worshipped. He says in the end, he knows their allegiance is really to Sacketh and Kaiwan. These are pagan star gods. One is thought to be Saturn. The other one we're not sure about. But these are gods that demand human suffering and, 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 and conjure up in their followers selfishness. See, Israel was shaped by those gods, not this God who is both good but also just. And so Israel is just really in a dire spiritual state. They're looking down the barrel of God's wrath and and snidely begging him, taunting him to pull the trigger. And sadly for us, things are about to get much worse for Israel because of her pride. 
But ultimately, the Lord and his grace and mercy will make things better, but not before he deals with these people like they ought to be dealt with. So tonight, we kind of get, a, in some sense, a repeat of Amos 5, because in the first section, like last time, uh, for tonight, in verses 1 through 7, Amos will lament Israel. He'll cry out for Israel's coming suffering. So he'll do that in the first section. And in the second section, again, the Lord will repeat that wrath and judgment is coming. He's warning them that their number is up. And uh, I guess really the only difference this time is that while in uh, the first section of Amos 5, Amos was singing this funeral lament. Well, now Amos is actually in the middle of a funeral banquet. That's kind of a, uh, it's not easy to detect in the text itself, but scholars point out that all the things he's talking about, all the things that he's mentioning here are, are, are key features of funeral banquets that are held, especially for the, the wealthy and the powerful um, in the ancient Near East, not only in Israel, but throughout the, uh, throughout the ancient Near East. And so the point that we're seeing here clearly, I think the fact that he's singing these dirges and he's going to funerals, all in time for Halloween, by the way, the point that he's trying to, 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 to show them is that Israel is constantly looking into the face of death, constantly looking at uncleanness and impurity. And in the face of all of that, they're celebrating, they're carousing, they're getting drunk, they're getting high, they're laughing it up while they're staring at destruction in their midst. It's a, it's a disjointed image that we're seeing. And so... The point is that even in the face of death and judgment, Israel is still irreverent and vile. And that's what's so offensive. When the wealthy and the, power of I- the powerful of Israel should be mourning death, they're using it as an excuse to be gluttonous, to be drunk, and to be lustful and lecherous. They're using this to be utterly contemptuous to everything and everyone, especially God, so they can worship themselves. That's the spiritual state that Amos finds Israel in. So we're going to look at these first seven verses together where Amos continues to mourn. So in these first seven verses, he launches into another kind of mournful, sad tirade against Israel. And they're just unabashed and wanton depravity. This is uh, being this, this is some unknown funeral banquet, and, and instead of having any sort of reflective, contemplative moment, moment, they're using this to be greedy. There's an unbelievable sense of entitlement and pride and security in the heart of Israel. Suffering and death are not reasons in their mind to lament or to reflect at all. It's reasons to laugh to party. And so Amos scowls at them in verse 1. Woe to those of you at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure in the hills of Samaria, the notable people in this, the first of nations. He almost says that kind of ironically in a way. Here you are supposed to be a civilized nation, the greatest nation in the world, and look how you're acting. See, they mistakenly think that their life of ease and security means that they're better than everyone else, that God favors them more than everyone else. The surrounding nations 
and, and even the poor within their own community are not as beloved by God as, as, as these rich and powerful people. And so in verse 3, it says that they dismiss the thought that any evil could ever befall them, that an evil day would ever come their way. And in so doing, the irony is that they're hastening a day of great violence and judgment against themselves. The spiritual blindness of Israel throughout this passage, throughout this book, throughout most of the Bible is staggering. And that's something I think that's worth soberly meditating on. For even for us as the church, that when we look at our life and it seems easy and secure, that may be when we might be incurring some guilt on ourselves, when we're not reflecting deeply on God's wrath. We're not reflecting deeply on, on how we may not be servant-hearted. Is it any wonder why time and again the scriptures warn us time and time again about the dangers and the destruction that pride brings about? Pride in our nation, pride in the economy, pride in military, pride in ethnicity, pride in family, pride in religion, pride in any of these things we think give us salvation, but ultimately offer us nothing in the end. That's the problem with Israel. She's putting her pride in all these earthly things and completely unable to set her mind on the things that are from above. So Amos continues to grieve. These people are utterly clueless. And so he he lists out things here that, I mean, for us well-to-do Americans, it's embarrassing some of the stuff to read. He talks about these extravagant beds they have inlaid with ivory. They're comfortable couches. They're sumptuous dinners. They're going, they're not getting the old, tough, nasty meat. They're getting the prime veal. They're going and getting the little lamb from the stall. They're eating well. And they're having these, these expensive, fancy dinners, and they're having wine by the bowlful. Not just a, a, a cup of it, but they're just, just constantly sloshed in wine. And, then, and on, to top it all off, they're putting on these exorbitant perfumes and lotions to us in, in the 21st century world where you can get a tub of lotion for $1.50. That might not seem surprising, but in this ancient world, all these things that they're talking about are, are, are things that are just utterly decadent. You remember in the New Testament where uh, this woman comes and, and, and breaks perfume over Jesus. And how Judas, who's been skimming money off the top, by the way, says that could have been sold and taken care of so many poor people. It's so expensive. This is a day in which all of these things, beds, couches, uh, 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 dinner of lamb, wine, perfumes, all these things are extravagant. And they're using these things in a debaucherous way at a funeral. It's not a wedding, it's not a a birthday, it's a funeral. And in verse 5, this is kind of funny, it says that Amos is is kind of poking fun. He's saying, you think you're such great musicians, you're getting drunk and and inventing songs, you're improvising songs, and even making new instruments and thinking you're better than King David. 
They're so drunk and deluded that they think the racket they're churning out at these borderline orgies are hymns that are, are more important than, that are, than hymns dedicated to the glory of God. That's scandalous. Decadence, decadence, decadence. They make everything about their power and pleasure. That's the only way through which they experience life. They waste so much of their money and manpower on glorifying themselves. They don't care about their countrymen who are starving. They don't care about the widows that have to become prostitutes just to survive. They don't care about the children that are being sold as slaves. They don't care that immigrants are being whipped and beaten like cattle. As long as they can sit in luxury, even at their funerals, they don't care that the ruin of Joseph, verse 6, is upon them. Meaning the utter and final collapse of the nation. But the Lord says, it doesn't matter how deluded you are, Israel, because in verse 7, he is going to do something about it. Now, I wonder, as these people that are seemingly incapable of ever imagining that their God would allow them to go into exile for their disobedience, I wonder if churches in America will ever figure out that God really just does not give a rip about our self-importance. He doesn't care about our programs, our politics, and our pomp and circumstance. That is not what makes churches impressive to God. When we try to make everything about us, maintaining our comfort and leisure and convenience and wealth, all while ignoring him by having ingrateful hearts and not ever being generous to one another. What's described so often as the American dream here in this nation that you could enrich and enlarge yourself is the very thing that becomes Israel's nightmare. God sends these people into exile because they are functionally incapable of looking outside of their own uh, living room and seeing that anybody else is worth any time or money besides them. And so, as, as, as Amos is, is here lamenting and, and weeping, even at a funeral for how impious these people are, the Lord speaks up on his own behalf here in verses 8 through 14, showing that this is not, this is not Amos, you know, this is not Amos being jealous of these people. You know, Amos is probably a middle class guy. He's the manager of a sheep farm and a fig farm. He's not coming up to the, 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 you know, the, the nice ritzy downtown area of, of Samaria and, and just sour grapes, wishes he could live this lifestyle. No, the Lord is backing him up in this. So look with me, starting at verse 8. The Lord reiterates that it's him who's displeased with these people. And he, by his own oath, says, I'm going to bring this prideful nation low. He first describes how he's going to obliterate Israel, and then he tells them that nothing that they pride, especially the strength of their military, because they were a powerful military at this point, not even that will save them. 
So verse 8 begins with this powerful word. It is a sworn oath from the Lord. Let's look at that verse again. Verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. Several interesting things to point out here. I don't know how your translation renders it. In the, in the CSB, the Lord God is in all caps because that's indicating that God is using not only his name, the Lord, but that the word for God there is to indicate his sovereignty. He is saying the sovereign Yahweh that created the universe is now speaking to you and swearing by his own name and character. This is the declaration that that Lord, the God of armies, gives to you. Now, in our own day, we really don't take oaths or vows quite so seriously. People swear that they'll do stuff all the time or they promise or they say, you can trust me and you can't trust them. We in the modern West don't pay any attention to people say, I promise or I swear anything. But in this ancient Near Eastern culture, publicly swearing an oath might be like if we got something, if we signed a contract and had it notarized and other parties there to witness it. And it was like a binding thing. In a, in a pre, um, I don't want to say pre-literate because this was a very literate culture, but before everybody was able to, to read and write, public testimony was a big deal. And so God is drawing people's attention to what he's saying. People weren't allowed to back out easily of oaths that they were taking. They just couldn't do that. It would be like trying to just back out of a, uh, of a contract in our modern legal system and say, well, I just don't feel like following through on that contract. It doesn't matter. We have documentation you signed right there. It's the same thing. And so the point is that God is promising to Israel. He is signing their death warrant in front of them and posting it outside of their temple and having it notarized. In other words, what we're about to read is a done deal. The Lord has had it up to here with Israel. He's begged them to repent, to come back, and they will not do it. And so God is avowing on his own character. He's saying, if I don't do this, I'm not true to my own character. And you better believe if the Lord says, I'm putting my character on the line here, that whatever comes after it is going to be done, whether we like it or not. And so the the sovereign Lord swears by his own nature, the God who commands all of the armies of heaven, Because he loathes, that's a strong word, loathes Israel's pride and its military. Because he he hates the, the pride that they take in their infrastructure in Samaria and all its wealth and glamour and power. He is going to hand them over to their enemies, the very ones that they have just described, thinking they're better than. Thinking that, oh, we're better than all these nations because we have more land. We have more territory than they do. But God shows in verses 9 through 10, he gives an, an image of what he really thinks of all of that. And so this is the, the portrait he paints for us. 
If there are ten strong men, if there are warriors in a household that can protect their family lineage and name, not a single one of them is going to walk out of that house alive. That, he's going to do that for all of Israel. The, the, the curse they experienced, the, the Egyptians experienced, that their firstborn child would die, the Lord's about to bring that tenfold on his own people. There won't even be anyone strong enough in that own household to bring those bodies out and bury them or to burn them, indicating that whatever the Lord afflicts them with may be such a vile and disgusting disease that you can't bury a body like that. Nobody will be in their houses being able to call them out. A foreign relative will have to come in and call any more with you. Meaning, is anybody still alive in the house? And we hear a disembodied voice, maybe the, a widow or a child saying, none. So anyone that remains will be afraid, we read, to invoke the Lord's name. Why is that? I think there's a couple reasons. First, because they'll find, Israel will finally realize that the Lord is not to be trifled with. His wrath and justice will be met out against his own people. And secondly, there will be nobody left to invoke the, the, Lord of the, names, the, the name of the Lord for. There will be nobody left to pray for because they'll all be dead. These rich and powerful people celebrating drunkenly in their homes will be gone. And it will be silent in the land of Israel. This is spooky stuff, folks. What the Lord swears he'll do, he swears by his own character. So you better believe he will carry that out. And what he commands in verse 11 suggests that it will be carried out from the largest mansions in the land to the smallest houses. All of them will be destroyed, smashed to pieces, and left in rubble. What's so terrifying about this, I think, is that Israel just refuses to pay attention to it. God is saying to their face, here's what's going to happen. Here's the disaster I am about to unleash on you. And they will not listen. They won't pay attention. Only when it's too late will they maybe begin to reflect on how they've got here. And truth be told, folks, sometimes I fear a similar path forward for some of our churches here in America, because I see so many Christians take pride in denomination and tradition and size and wealth of a congregation, but seem to be altogether disinterested in worshiping the Lord and obeying his commands. So who cares if you're the biggest, most influential church and you have a, a great budget? Or who cares if you're a small church and it's, it's great preaching and, and it's a, a tight-knit community? Who cares about any of that stuff if you're not worshiping the Lord and obeying him according to his word? It's meaningless, he would have us know. And I think sometimes we are just, it seems like we are barreling over a cliff sometimes. Because we will fight and squabble tooth and nail about the silliest things. But we'll not be moved at all to repent and listen to the Lord. 
even when his word is as clear as day, it's so easy for every single one of us to find justification for how it doesn't really apply to us. Well, you don't understand. They said this to me and no. Well, here's the thing you don't get. I wasn't having a good day. No. How often when we read the story of Israel, when they're wandering in the wilderness, just a bunch of ingrates, or we see the disciples in some storm or, or putting their foot in their mouth, how often do we read these texts and we'll say to each other, isn't it baffling? That they've been with the Lord physically. They've seen the miracles he's done in the wilderness. They've seen him calm the storms. And yet they still cannot trust him. And they utterly miss what he's doing. How is that possible? We are missing the point if we don't see ourselves in these groups of people. We're utterly missing the point. If we read the book of Amos and think, Man, that really stinks for that group of people over there. But don't think in any way it reflects our own heart and our own inclinations. We're the most deluded people yet. Perhaps worst of all, because we have this entire uh, testimony of God, both Old and New Testament, his full plan of salvation laid out for us, and we still don't believe. All the sins and doubts that we see in Israel, all the pride and failure we see in the early church, we miss the point if we don't see these rebukes are for even us. It may just be why, I think, in verses 12 through 14, Amos asked a kind of a series of of strange rhetorical questions like he did in chapter 3. You remember in chapter 3 he says, you know, which one of you will hear an invader coming into your city and not sound the alarm bell. Of course, it's like, well, yeah, of course we'll do that. We know when, if danger's upon us, you know, we'll, and the point he's trying to get them to see again is, 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 is how obvious the signs are. So he says, this is kind of weird. He essentially is saying, would any of you get on your horse and get on a, on a steep mountain cliff on the summit and just tell the horse, just get that horse galloping as fast as you can go? Nobody would do that. Would you take your ox way up to that same stony cliff and start to plow those edges? No. And church, let's put it in our modern day parlance. Would any of you want to get in a car and go 90 miles an hour on a windy, curvy road with a narrow shoulder and a 500 foot drop off? Would any of you want to do that? Would any of you want to get a push mower and try to trim uh, the grass and, and have about a thousand feet of, of, of a fall off right next to you? All of us say, no, of course we'd never do that. But the point that he makes here is that you wouldn't do that, Israel. You wouldn't go galloping on a wild horse. You wouldn't work an oxen on the side of a mountain, but you are just as, uh, as, as crazy to think that you can disobey the Lord your God, the Lord God of armies who swears by his own power and glory by turning justice, meaning, again, fair and right treatment of other people, regardless of whether they were born in your presence or if they're poor or if they don't have any family, you're willing to treat them like uh, like scum, you're, you're ready to turn justice 
to them to poison. You're ready to turn righteousness, another synonym of justice, for bitterness to those people. You wouldn't go uh, galloping so carelessly off the side of a mountain, but you would ascend the mountain of God and look at a holy, blazing fire and mistreat his people? See, what they're doing is utterly insane. It's unhinged. It's irrational. And the point is clear. God's people, Amos would have us to know, are trying to play Russian roulette with God. And they've been handed a gun and every chamber is loaded. It doesn't matter when they spin it. If they put it to their head and pull the trigger, they're dead. That's the point that Amos is trying to get us to see. Israel, this is spiritual suicide. What you're doing is going to end in your destruction. There is no way that you can plow that field. There's no way that you can go galloping across that mountaintop without falling to your death and demise. Israel should be able to so clearly, so easily see the sense in this. But still, they will not listen. They make their defenses by saying, Look, our military destroyed Lo Debar. This is interesting, but some scholars point out that this, this word Lo Debar is a, a pun on, a, on a, a similar Hebrew phrase that literally means no thing. So, in other words, they're saying, Look, our military went to, to, to Nowheresville, USA, and took it over. Anybody could do that. He's saying, you, the, the mil, even your military accomplishments aren't impressive. And he goes on. He says, they're, they're bragging about not only destroying and capturing nothing, but then they captured Karnaim, this, this, this city that means strength by their own strength. But what kind of strength do you have to have to take over something so measly like that little small town? That's what you trust in? Your flesh is what you trust in. Your money is what you trust in. Your military is what you trust in. Are you crazy, Israel? God laughs at Israel in verse 14. Like he laughs at the pagan, raging, plotting nations in Psalm 2. The Lord again swears by his own power, his own armies, that he is going to raise up another nation that's going to do to Israel what Israel couldn't imagine they were doing to somebody else. Little do they know that Assyria, a nation of barbarians, even secular historians will tell you how terrible and inhumane the Assyrians were. The Lord's going to raise them up to bring a swift and terrible end to northern Israel. Those, they think their borders are impenetrable, and they don't know that the Assyrians are, as the Lord is speaking to them, breathing down their necks. They'll be there in just a matter of, of, of years capturing, looting, pillaging, burning, destroying everything from Hamath or Hamath up in the north all the way down to Arabah in the south. Israel is going to look like a nuclear bomb went off when, by the time Assyria is done with them. And here's the tragic irony of all of this. Israel will have no one to blame but Israel. 
God has given warning time and time again. Seek me and live, but they sought their flesh and they'll die. So much of Israel's problem and ours as as Christians, I think, can be so boiled down to pride. We put pride in everything but boasting in the Lord. We can value ourselves, our image, our property, our luxury, our decadence, whatever. We can value that above everything else. We'll we'll always spend ourselves, think about how we can pamper ourselves, take care of ourselves, and it's repugnant to us the thought of giving generously to anybody. But that's not the way that God calls us to be. Israel going to a funeral and celebrating like it's a New Year's Eve party is what sinners do spiritually. We're here we sit, spiritually dead people. And we live out lives where we worship at our own grave. It's insane. Instead, what Israel should have been doing is joining Amos in this funeral lament, crying and weeping out and begging to God for mercy. Now, again, when we get to the end of Amos here in just a few weeks, we'll see that the Lord does ultimately want to be merciful, but he has to be just too. He gives us time and time again to repent, to turn away from our nastiness, to turn away from our idolatry, because he'll love us and forgive us. But as Christians, I I want us to think positively about something. We've seen now negatively how Israel's been for a while. But we have blueprints for how we ought to live well in this world. And we we can find a place, like we talked about this morning in, in Colossians 3, I was thinking about this in Romans 12. The Apostle Paul um, just gives us such a beautiful exhortation of how we should live. And so we've heard heard such a negative image of how Israel's living. But I want the, the last word tonight to be from the scriptures. How the Apostle Paul tells us we can live because of Jesus. So I'm going to read Romans 12 for us as a closing word. Listen to this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not on yourselves, before one another, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this age. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good in the place, what is good Uh, pleasing and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. And if exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let love 
be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what to, to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, vengeance belongs to me, I'll repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. And as Paul summarizes in all this, do not be conquered by evil. Church, don't be conquered by any of the evil that we see in Israel and, more importantly, any of the evil we see in our own heart. Instead, conquer evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, help us to honestly assess our own hearts by the power and wisdom of your Spirit. And in so doing, help us to repent and turn to Jesus for his saving grace. And Father, let us live lives that are oriented first towards you and secondly towards one another, that we might bring glory to your name and goodness to those with whom we live. We thank you for being so patient with us. May you shape us to be more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus every day. For it's in his name and his name alone do we pray. Amen.